The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we'll be today. Uh, it's been a while since we've been in Ephesians. We've, uh, we, prior to this, had walked through the first three chapters of Ephesians. We're going to walk through the, the last three. And what, uh, what Paul does here in this letter to Ephesians is he turns the corner. The first three chapters, he's... He's done us a favor and he's organized this thing. The first three chapters are very doctrinal, very theological. They're the truths, the realities of our faith. And then starting here in chapter 4, he's going to then turn and say, okay, based out of those realities, now walk. That's the title for my sermon today is Now Walk. And, and I, want to, I want to just look at this today with you and look at how we are to walk. I was thinking about this as I'm preparing this, and you'll, you'll get it here in a minute as, as uh, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for Christ, urge you to walk. Um, I was thinking about this. When I was growing up uh, in East Tennessee, my dad, we, we would always do this thing. Anybody else on Sunday afternoons, you grew up going to your grandparents' house? I'm not alone. Yeah, I see hands out there. Um, you know, I, that's what we did. We just went up to my grandparents' house. My grandparents lived up in the mountains. Uh, my, my dad, there was 10 people, lived in this two-bedroom house up in the mountains of East Tennessee. That's where he grew up. It, my, my grandfather uh, didn't make it past the fourth grade, never had a driver's license, farmed, plowed with mules. I mean, it was, it was one of the, I mean, it was just out there in the, in the mountains in the country. We'd go up there, and there was literally nothing to do according to today's standards. Kids, hear me this. There was no TV. It was in the days before the Internet, Right? The internet was just not, didn't exist yet. Think, what? There's a time when the internet didn't exist? No, no game systems, nothing. We, the only t- there was a TV in the house, but it was because my uncle Dole, um, and yeah, that was Dole, it was his name. I, and anyway, but he brought this TV into the house. Uh, if that's your name, I apologize. It was just odd to me growing up. He brought this TV into the house. They had no cable, uh, they could only get one channel that the antenna that was mounted across the road would get when they would go out and they would spin it just right. And even then, it was more snow than HD, right? I mean, it was just... And, and the only reason he brought it was because on Sunday afternoons, NFL football was on, and he wanted to be able to see the game. We would go up there to my grandparents' house, and even though there was nothing to do, according to today's standards, there was always something to do, right? My cousins, we got in so much trouble... We were all over the hillside. We messed with those mules. We took things out of the barn and made them into things that we shouldn't have made them into, all these things. But we would always wind up back at the house. And we, back at the house, all the grown-ups would sit in the living room. And they, they had no central heat and air. There was just this heat stove in the middle of the room. In the summertime, it was blazing hot because they had no air conditioning. In the wintertime, it was blazing hot because my grandfather thought, well, it's time to throw another piece of coal or a stick of wood on the fire. And he was constantly doing that. We'd wind up back at the living room, sitting in this living room. And when the kids would get restless, my dad would say, let's take a walk. And at the time, I used to hate taking a walk with Dad. I used to look at that and I would say, man, I don't want to go on a walk. There's got to be something more to do than take a walk. But then I'd get out on the walk and I'd realize just how much fun we would have. We would walk down the road in front of that little house that would walk down the road and to the other road where the river was on the other side. 
And we'd walk down that road, and my dad would tell me all these stories about when he was a kid growing up. And how at night, if he'd stayed out just a little too long, and he had to make it back up that road after the sun had gone, gone down. And he walked through those woods up that road, and he would hear things up there. Maybe a squirrel would drop a, a, an acorn out of a tree or something, and how he'd become frightened. And how he'd take off and run back to the house. We'd head down that road and walk with my dad. And I didn't really realize what I was gleaning and what I was learning. We, I never knew what we were going to get into. Sometimes there would be something we'd find along the way. And we would go off the road and we'd find ourselves out in the wood looking for this or that. Other times we'd go across the road at the end and we'd go to the river and we would skip stones and we would talk about things. The walks on those roads have become so meaningful to me later on. Right now, I, I would love to be able to go back to that old home place and walk that road. I, you know, the Bible here, Paul tells us to walk. To walk. And, and I, I thought about this as I'm preparing this and these memories come flooding back about my dad on those Sunday afternoons taking these walks and how at first when he would say them, now walk, and I would say, oh, I don't want to walk. But then we'd get out there and I would realize I was enjoying the walk. I think that's what happens with us so much, so many, so many times, so often, whenever we walk with the Lord, it seems drudgery at first, but when we continue in the walk, we realize just what God is doing and just how much we are growing and just how much we enjoy the process along the way. So today, I want to challenge you to walk. Let's look, if you will, join me in Ephesians chapter 4, and let's look at the first six verses there. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Today I want to, to just point out a few things in these few verses, in the first six verses of chapter 4. The first thing I'll point out to you is this. Don't quit walking when it gets hard. Don't quit walking when it gets hard. When Paul here says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's in the same sentence that Paul urges them to walk, he reminds them that he is in prison at the moment. That he is a prisoner at the moment. He's not, this is not just, just language that's colorful that he's using, that he's saying, oh, as a prisoner of the Lord. No, he's in chains at the moment. He's chained to a Roman guard. He's in prison, and he reminds them of this. And why is he there? He's in prison because he walked. He walked with and for the Lord. So it almost sounds counterproductive for the one who's in prison for walking to say, I urge you to walk as well. It's kind of like having a woodshop teacher in high school that's missing a finger and saying, don't you just love woodshop? You know, you don't necessarily want to listen to that guy. Maybe Paul here is not the best spokesperson for this, we would say. 
But the reality is, God wants His people to know exactly what they are getting into before they sign up. That's what Paul's doing. Paul hides nothing. He says, I'm here as a prisoner for the Lord. Look at these chains. I got here because I walked, and I'm urging you to walk as well. This is a powerful message because God wants us to know what we're dealing with on the front end. Christianity is, is not a nice, comfortable means of getting all of our problems solved. This is the way so much of Christianity is painted today with this broad brush that if you come to Jesus, then joy will just flood your life and, and puppies will show up at your door and rainbows will cover your house. And the reality is Christianity is not, is not something that is just this add-on to your life where everything sort of just magically gets worked out. Christianity, following Christ, walking with God, often means it will get hard. And Jesus wants us to know this. Jesus forewarned his own disciples in Luke 21, verse 12, when he said to them, They will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to to the synagogues and, and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. In Revelation chapter 21, or in chapter 2, verse 10. There to one of the churches, those seven churches that, that the, 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 the Lord writes to, he said to them in Revelation 2.10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You say, Pastor, this is a really cheerful sermon to start the new year with. You know, thanks for choosing this topic. I think this is a perfect place for us to start. We, we live in America, and, and we may never face persecution that's, that's described there in Revelation chapter 2. We may never face the type of, of persecution that Jesus described and outlined to his disciples, that they would be persecuted and thrown in prison. But I can guarantee you that even in America, walking for the Lord will get difficult. It will get hard. And what Paul here says is, don't quit when it gets hard. The underlying message is, it will be worth it, no matter what it costs you. And I just want to ask you that this morning. I want to just pose the question to the believers in the room. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Christianity will be worth it no matter how hard it gets? That's what's implied here when when Paul says to them, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. The word worth there, or worthy, is the word word that means weight or weighty. What he's saying to them, it could be translated as, I urge you to walk in a manner that reflects the full weight of what you have received. And what is that weight? Well, if we look backwards, and I'm going to take some time just to do this this morning with you because it's been a while since we've been here, but, but if you've got a, a, a Bible or an electronic copy, go back to chapter 1. Now, I want to read through verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1, and I just want to point out to you, what is this weight? When Paul here says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What is the weight of this? Verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Meaning, 
Everything heaven has to offer is ours in Christ. You think about that. Everything that heaven has to offer. Let me ask you the question. Did you get everything you wanted for Christmas? Are you satisfied with all your, all your gifts? Anything broken yet? Have to take anything back? Wrong size, right? There's a limit to what we receive this Christmas. See, we live, in, we live in a place where we can even ask those questions. Did you get everything you wanted? Contrast that with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, do you realize that there is nothing in you that God said, man, look at her. Man, she would be an asset to the team. We've got to get her. I'm following football recruiting right now, still holding out hope for my, my team, you know, for next year. Gave up on last year, going to next year, looking at these four-star and five-star recruits, you know. There's nothing in, in any of us that, that made God go, oh, yeah, look at the way he does that or she does that. He chose us irregardless of our hopelessness. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons. We've been adopted into the family of God. That we who once were orphans, we were separated from God, we were fatherless in this world, has adopted us, looked on us in our, in our plight and said, no, you are mine. You're not just mine in a way that I'm going to enlist you and use you and abandon you. You are mine in the way that I will bring you to my table and I will sustain you. You will become an heir of my family. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses. Part of the weightiness of our calling is the fact that the second member of the Trinity left heaven, put on flesh, lived a perfect life and went to a cross and there gave his own life for us so that our sins might be forgiven. The Bible tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9 tells us that he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. We, we could go on and on throughout what Paul has laid out for us in chapters 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3. It's, the, it's this enormous weight that we have received. And what Paul is saying is, look at me in chains. Know what it might require of you. But let me tell you something. What we have received... It is worth it. No matter how hard it gets, church, don't quit. Walk. Don't give up when it gets hard. Keep walking. 
The immediate price for Paul to, to walk with the Lord meant imprisonment for him. But in Philippians 3.8, he lets us know how he feels about that when he said, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ or the surpassing weight of knowing Christ, my, Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And listen, count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. No matter how hard this life gets, no matter how hard the walk gets, I want to, at the beginning of 2018, tell you, don't quit. It will be worth it no matter how hard it gets. Secondly, not just don't quit the walk when it gets hard, but secondly, and this is where we get into the thrust of, I think, the main point of, the, of, his, of this passage, is don't walk alone. Don't walk alone. In verse 3, he says, Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Christianity is not meant to be this solo sport. I'm thankful when I look out. I, I stand sometimes over there when we're singing our songs, and, and I can't help. I'm, I'm singing to the Lord, and, and you know how I feel about worship is that in our singing, we're singing to God, but we're also singing across to one another because we want to bring one another along in that. And, and I sometimes look over my shoulder and I, and I watch you worship. And I'm so thankful for your commitment to one another. Christianity is not meant to be this solo sport. It's meant to be lived in community. And here we're told to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And it's a unity, notice, that you and I didn't produce. We couldn't have produced this. I mean, let me just do a little, a little poll here. Uh, how, many, how many of you like country music in the room okay okay put your hands down how many of you like pop all right some of those same hands went up hip-hop fewer hands but still still some uh rap which would kind of be in that same category i see my chairman of deacons back there likes rap i, I love that a uh, little bit of uh, talk radio would be your preference yeah uh, yeah see I, i'm right here bob me and you talk radio right uh, we're, we're into this Okay, how many of you would prefer to read a good book? All right. How many of you would prefer to watch a movie? Okay. How many of you would prefer to take a vacation to the beach? How many of you would prefer to take a vacation to the mountains? Okay. How many of you would just want to go on vacation? Right? <laughs> yeah, okay. That's what I thought. How many of you in the room have young kids living in your home? Okay. How many of you have teenagers? I have teenagers. How many of you have grandchildren? Not necessarily living in your home, but you have grandkids. Maybe they are living in your home. I don't know. Um, see, we could go on and on. These are just surface-level distinctions in our congregation. I think some of you raised your hand on every single question. All right, you know, you just, I just want to be involved, you know, like, <laughs> I just want to get in, you know. These are just some surface-level things that are different about one another. You have grandparents and new parents and parents just trying to survive the teen years. You know, we, we, have, we have country music fans and rap fans and talk radio fans. and We have people that have worked all their life in a blue-collar industry. And we have people that have white-collar industry. There's so many differences that we could go on and on and on. And the reality that it points to is that 
outside of the unity that is produced by the Spirit of God, we shouldn't be hanging out together. Apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, we wouldn't be in the same room with one another probably. This is not a unity that you and I produce. We couldn't produce it even if we tried, but we are urged here to maintain it. This is pretty crucial here. And it's just, Paul doesn't say produce this unity, make this unity happen. What he says is this unity already exists here. Maintain it. And the very, the very fact that Paul here has to tell us to maintain the unity points to the fact that this unity has a tendency to devolve and drift. And therefore, we must maintain this. I think it devolves and drifts for a couple of reasons. One is... None of us are perfect. All of us are in, in the process of, of either coming to the Lord or, or becoming transformed to the image of Christ. None of us are there yet. We're like Paul. I have not arrived. I, I, I forget what's behind me and I, look, I press forward to what's ahead, right? That's all of us. But the reality is we're imperfect people and we hold on to our preferences sometimes a little too strongly. We, we have, are offended a little too easily. We hold grudges a little too long, right? And you put all of us together, and this just sort of compounds itself because we're all imperfect people now living together. The second reason I think it, this unity will devolve and drift is because we have an enemy. The Bible tells us that Satan is our enemy, that the devil is a real enemy, that he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he will devour, Peter tells us. John 8, tells us that he's a liar, that he's the father of lies, that there's no truth in him. 2 Corinthians 11 tells us that he disguises himself as an angel of light. And therefore, don't be surprised when his demons also disguise themselves in the same manner. That they come in among us at times and they disguise themselves as workers of righteousness. This means that in every church there are, there are not just those that are genuine believers, but there are also those that are deceived and that are being used to deceive others. That Satan is a real enemy. That, he, that When Jesus told the parable of the sower, it was Satan who... who plucked the seed from the ground. He plucks the Word of God out of the hearts of those that hear it. That He causes the thorns and the vines to grow up to choke it out. You put, you put imperfect people together and have a common enemy and we devolve. This unity kind of begins to drift and go away. We, we know that, that Satan will not win in the end, that he's on a leash but at the current time, here Paul tells us that we must do everything we can to maintain this unity. So the question becomes then, how? How do we maintain this unity? How do we work on this? Well, he gives us some reasons. He gives, gives us three here. Others have looked at these and said five. I, I think at bare minimum here there's three, and I just want to point these out to you. He says there in verse 2, with all humility. Humility is a word that could also be translated lowly. With all lowliness. You know, it's, it's ironic, I guess, to look at this and, and, and to say, he, he says, look, consider where you've come from. 
Look, walk in a manner that's worthy of what you have received. Look at your privileged position. And then he says, consider yourself lowly. And those two things don't seem to go together, but you're going to see how they do in just a second. The ancient Greco-Roman culture despised humility. They saw it as, as, a, as a character trait that was fitting of a slave. It was something to be shunned. Instead, they, they, um, they, they really liked a person who was seen as complete or self-sufficient. They called him the, the mega-souled man or the, or the great-souled man. He was the, he was the person who needed nobody else but himself. He was ultimate in his own eyes. And this is who they revered. The person who was humble was a slave, but the one who needed no one. That's who they wanted to be. But God disagrees. 1 Peter chapter 5 tells us, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus himself displayed this humility, and therefore we should emulate him. Philippians chapter 2 reveals this humility of Jesus when it says there in verse 6, though he was in the form of God, meaning he's God. Jesus is not just this man. He's God. He's worshipped and adored by angels throughout eternity. He had no beginning. He will have no end. He needed nothing. He was complete and perfect within the triune God. And he did not consider that something to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Remember the Greco-Roman world despised this servant. Humble? Are you kidding me? That's the character of a, of a slave. And the God of the universe says, it's not anything to be held on to. I will empty myself and I will take on flesh. Jesus doesn't stop being God, but he adds to his, his godness humanity. And he takes the form of a slave or a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the first way that Paul tells us that we are to maintain the unity within the family, the body, the church, is that we would be humble. That we would model the character that Jesus modeled. Don't hold on to the things that we're entitled to, but instead empty ourselves of those and become a servant to our brother and sister. Secondly, you want to maintain the unity within the church of Christ? With all gentleness. Gentleness could also be translated meekness. Meekness is often equated in our culture with weakness. If, if you meet a man and you say that's a meek man, you would just assume we meant that he's weak. And he can be easily defeated, that he needs to kind of just man up a little bit. But the reality is, this is simply not true. The word meek here, or gentle, is a word that means power under control. Um, we walk into a room, and we flip a switch, and what happens? Could be anything this day, right? But I'm specifically talking about the lights come on, right? We flip a switch, and the lights come on. Or we go to the wall, and that little box on the wall, and we, and we bump it up, and the heat 
kicks on, right? And we think, man, that's, that, is, that is gentle power. That is meek power. We think that's somehow weak. That's just a little, slip, little flip of the wrist thing there, right? Yeah, go out and grab the, the power line that comes into your house and tell me it's weak or it's meek or it's gentle or it's mild. See, the reality is that that power that comes into our house is then regulated and comes to a switch that is controlling it. And Jesus displayed again this, this power under control for us. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, he said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus here, he doesn't back up from the fact that he is meek or gentle. He just presses into it. I mean, Jesus, the God of the universe, King of kings, Lord of lords, when he's about to go to the cross, how does he, how does he arrive in Jerusalem? On a donkey's colt. The weakest way to arrive he possibly could have imagined. And it caused those looking around to say, are you kidding me? This is your king? He's hanging on the cross. And the people in the crowd are saying, he's your king. Deliver us, O king. The soldiers who beat him before he went to that cross struck him on the head, spit in his face and pulled hands full of beard from his face and said, Hail, King of the Jews. He was no less king in that moment. The king of the universe humbled himself, made himself gentle for our sake. Jesus may have arrived on a donkey then, but he will one day come on a horse of war. And the power that was controlled in his first appearance here on earth will not be controlled then. You and I are called to this same gentleness, this meekness, this controlling of power when it comes to one another that we might, we might not just fly off the handle and just let people have everything we've got, but instead that we might control that, that we might model what Jesus modeled for us. And then he says, not only with all humility and with gentleness, but the third is with patience. And I would, I would put these two things, these together, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Some would say these are three different things, patience, bearing with one another, and love. I think all these three can sort of be summed up in this patience with one another. It's a character trait that God so often displays toward his children, and we are to strive to be like our Father. And Jesus told the story in Matthew 18. I won't take time to read it, but he tells the story of, of, uh, of this kingdom, and there was a king there, and he had a servant who owed him this enormous amount of money. And he hadn't been able to pay, and the king brings him forward, and he's going to have to throw him in prison because it's more money than he could ever, ever repay. And, and, and the servant falls down on his knees in front of the king, and he says, Have mercy on me, king. If you give me time, I will do everything in my power to pay you back. Just have mercy on me. And the king looks at him and says, 
I'll have mercy on you. And he extends mercy to him. And he allows him to go out and go to work and still be with his family and, and work to pay off his debt. The king knows at that point he's never going to be able to pay off the debt. But he has mercy on him, right? The servant then goes out having received mercy. He goes out in the street and bumps into a guy that owes him ten bucks, a hundred bucks, something small. Something that, that could be paid back relatively easily, but the guy hasn't. And the servant begins to demand his money. Pay me back what you owe me. And the guy says, I, I, don't, I don't have it right now. Have mercy on me. And he says, I'm not giving you any mercy. And he begins to strangle the man. And people that saw the king give him mercy and see him now extending no mercy to the man who owes him such a little amount, go back, tell the king, and the king then takes him and throws him into prison. And the mercy is taken back. The picture there for us is that we have received this mercy. That you and I have received this mercy from, from God, that He has been patient with us, that He's been forbearing with us, that He has loved us in, in looking on our debt, looking at something that we could never repay and saying, I will have mercy on you. And if that is the case, then how... If, if we're looking at that, how could we not look at our brothers and sisters and say, we will also have mercy with one another? Rather than flying off the handle into a rage with one another, we are to endure wrongs and shortcomings. And so let me ask this question. In looking at these three ways that we maintain the unity in the body of Christ, this, the, the, the uh, humility, the gentleness, and the patience, what's the opposite of humility and gentleness? I mean, is it, is it not pride and unrestrained power? And then let me ask this. Does unity flourish where everyone is filled with pride and quick to action? Does unity flourish in a place like that? If we're all just, man, giving it to one another all the time, are we unified? Absolutely not. Man, we're at each other's throats. There's no unity here. Does patience come easy in a place like that? No. Nobody's being patient because I'm not going to be patient with you because you're not patient with me. Does love flow freely in that environment? Only love for self. And you better believe it flows freely. So the question here is once again, how? Paul says, I urge you to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, how do we do that, Paul? Well, be humble, be gentle, and, and, and be patient with one another. You ever tried to do those things in your own strength? So the question then is, well, how do we do that? How do, how do we walk in humility and gentleness and patient, patience with one another, Paul? Is this something we muster up? Which brings me to my third point today. Don't stray from the well-worn path. If we're walking, don't give up when it gets hard. Don't walk alone. You walk together. And then third, don't stray from this well-worn path. And here's what I mean. The well-worn path is the truth that Scripture reveals to us. And this is what he's going to show us in verses 4 through 6. Verses 4 through 6 are just these little short doctrinal statements. And they seem at first out of place. We read all this. We say he's being very practical. And then all of a sudden he just launches into this sort of dissertation here of doctrine. We say, well, what's this about? 
Well, let me walk through and then you'll see. Hang with me. He says, there's one body. What he's talking about there is he's speaking of the church. He's not talking about the body of Jesus. He's talking about the body of Christ, meaning the church. Within the local church, we don't wall ourselves off from one another. We don't separate into these homogenous groups. We don't say, okay, all the Jews, you can be over there and all the Gentiles over there. We don't look at one another and say, okay, if you've got young kids, then you go over there. And you've got grandkids, you go over there. We don't, we don't wall off and say, if you're of this color or you're that color or whatever. We don't do that. There's one body, he says. We've been brought into the body of Christ and not one of us deserves to be here. There's one body. We don't come to the body of our liking or of our creation. We don't come to the unity that we've worked up. We come to the one body of Christ. Nobody deserves to be here. Not your pastor. Not your rap-loving chairman of deacons. Not your Sunday school teacher. Nobody deserves to be here. There's one spirit, he says. We were all called by the same spirit. We've been filled with the same spirit. There is one spirit, and the spirit makes us one. One commentator said it this way. He said, the Holy Spirit creates, fills, coordinates, orchestrates, and empowers the body of Christ. We're all dependent on the Spirit of God. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, we, do you realize that we have been taken from a position of no hope to a hope that will never disappoint? That's what is said in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Here's one hope. And it has nothing to do with our potential or our location or our demographic, or our finances, our one hope is the gospel. Verse 5 says there's one Lord. In the Old Testament, Lord was, was, uh, was the title for Yahweh. It's also a favorite title for Jesus in the New Testament. Romans 14, verses 8 and 9, For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. You know, sometimes people talk about Christianity and they say, You know, I, I kind of like the God of the New Testament, but man, that God of the Old Testament, I don't want to follow him. No, no, no. They're the same. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament because there's one Lord. There's one God. In fact, if you notice in this, in, in verses 4 through 6, there's this re picture revealed of the Trinity. We're told that there's one Spirit. We're told that there's one Lord. And we're told that there is one God and Father of all. In this, we see the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. 
Verse 5 also tells us that there's one faith. And this is not talking about this action of believing on our part. Instead, what this is talking about is the doctrine, the body of belief that we receive. This is why in Jude chapter 3, he's told there to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. In Ephesians chapter 4, hopefully next week, we'll look at at this in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ. It's this body that we receive of doctrine and knowledge, right? He says also that there is one baptism. It doesn't tell us, talking about water baptism, spirit baptism, we don't know. But Galatians chapter 3 tells us in verses 27 and 28, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The emphasis here is on the unity that is produced because we have been baptized into Christ. And then verse 6 tells us there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. While God is the creator of the universe... And he is God of all. Chapter 1, verse 3 tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. While God is is God of the whole universe, he is Father to Christ and those who are in him. You say, well, what in the world does that have to do with any of this walking together? I mean, if we're going to walk together and we're not going to walk alone and we're going to maintain this unity in the body of Christ, why does he then launch off into these doctrinal statements, these seven, there's one this and one that and one that? Because verses 4 through 6 become the ground upon which we walk. Without the ground of verses 4 through 6, the commands of verses 1 through 3 become like trying to walk on air. You ever tried to walk on air? I wouldn't recommend it. You can't walk on air. We need solid ground under our feet, and verses 4 through 6 become that. If you try to muster up humility and gentleness and patience, you will fail. You'll come in here with a New Year's resolution, and you'll say, This year, Dad Gummit, I'm going to be more humble. And you better recognize that. Right? You're going to fail. You say, I'm going I'm to control myself more. I'm going to be more gentle. You know, and then somebody's going to just irritate you to the point where you just flip that switch, right? And you unleash on them. You try to muster this thing up in your own strength without the ground of verses 4 through 6, and you will fail every time. But if you start with the solid realities of our faith then you'll find the stability that you need to walk in God's commands. It's hard to be prideful. It's hard to be prideful when you're looking at God, isn't it? When you're looking at there is one Spirit and there is one Lord and there is one God and Father of all. It's hard to be prideful when you look at Him. It's, it's, you know, my knowledge is small next to His omniscience. And who's going to stand before God and say, God, you know, if I were you, I would. It's kind of hard to be prideful. It's kind of hard for me to look at my righteousness and think that it's 
of, of any size compared to the holiness of God. It's pretty difficult for me to look at my strength and say, God, I know you're omnipotent and all, but you've created everything and you hold all things together. God, I'm a, I got your back right here. That's kind of hard to do. It's hard to want to strangle one another when we see how much we have been forgiven and how patient that God's been with us. It's, it's hard to tell somebody that they don't belong when we realize that we don't belong. It's hard to get frustrated with someone who's just not getting it when you realize that the only reason you got it was because he gave it. See, when, when Paul here tells us, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. When he tells us that, he's not saying, just get gentle. Just put up with one another. No, no, he's saying, look at God. Look at the gospel. Look at what you have received. And now, stand on that and put one foot in front of the other and walk. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for, God, the clarity of your word. Lord, I thank you for the calling that you've placed on my life. And God, I thank you for the people that, that have come today and have sat and listened. And Lord, I just pray that you would, would speak clearly. Lord, that you would take the truth of your word and God, that you might bring it home to your, your people here. Lord, that you might open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see you clearly. And God, that we might respond appropriately. Lord, do your work, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, I want to, uh, to give you the challenge and, and, um, to respond in faith. One of the ways that we're going to do that is we're going to walk one of those well-worn paths together. The Lord's Supper or communion is one of those well-worn paths. It seems at times as, as though maybe it's something that's it's outdated, it's antiquated, why do we still do this? Maybe you haven't been around church very much at all, and you look at this and you say, why do they, why do they eat little pieces of bread and drink little cups of juice? The reality is we do this because this points us back to those truths like Paul was showing us in verses 4 through 6. It points us back and it shows us the gospel, that before we leave this place and go out and live our lives, that we're Reminded, and we come back and we root ourselves in the gospel that, that Jesus left heaven, that he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped and hoarded and held onto for himself, but instead that he emptied himself, that he took on flesh, and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so when we come and we eat the bread, we're reminding ourselves of the sacrifice that God has made for us. We're remembering that Jesus died in my place, that the bread reminds me that he gave his body for me. When we drink the cup, we're reminded that his blood was poured out for me, that he spilled his own blood to, so that I could have my sins forgiven. 
We do these things to remind ourselves of that so that we will be rooted in the gospel. We do it for another reason, because we remind ourselves that just as he came the first time, that he says he's coming again. Jesus told his disciples in that upper room that night before he was arrested and taken to the cross to, to continue on to do this. And as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so that's why we do this. We remember, that, uh, we remember what he has done and we proclaim until he comes again the gospel to one another. So in just a minute, Ethan's going to um, play. We're going to sing some songs together. But this is a time where you respond. If you are a believer here, this act is, is not just for anybody. This is, we, we do this because we believe these things. This is, this is an ordinance of the church. We don't believe that this confers grace on you. We don't believe that when you eat the bread and you drink the cup that somehow it makes you right with God. We believe that because we've been made right with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ that now we come and we celebrate this together, right? So if you're here to get today and, and this, you're not a believer, you look at this and you say, I don't know what that's about, I would just ask you to just refrain. Just sit back and just watch. It doesn't mean that we don't love you or that we're saying you don't belong here. We're saying that we, we believe this. And so we would ask you just to respect that and, and, uh, and, and leave that to those who are believers, if you're here with us today and you are visiting maybe from another church and you're in good standing with that faith family, meaning that you're not running away from something there, but you're in good standing there and you're just a guest with us today, you're visiting here, then by all means come and take of the table, take, a, take of the elements today. The way we do it here is perhaps a little bit differently. Our regulars know this and, and maybe you've heard this many, many times, but let me just explain it again. We come with family or we come with Sunday school classes or friends or people on a row and we gather around the table and we take the elements together. Rather than passing the plates, we want this to be a meaningful experience for you. So there will be probably lines that form in the aisles. It's not a time for you to talk about the national championship or to talk about somebody's cute new shoes. It's a time for you to to remember what God has done on your behalf. To examine yourselves and say, Lord, thank you for saving me. Lord, I remember today what you've done for me. And God, through my action today, I preach the gospel that you can, you're still doing it for others and you will, you will come again. If you're here and, and you can't get to the table and you would like to partake, we would love to serve you. There will be men in the room who would, if you'll just lift your hand, they'll bring the elements to you. But as Ethan leads us and we sing together, as he sings, as you're ready, I'm just going to invite you to just stand up and come to the table. If you're here today and you heard the message of the gospel and you know you need to be saved or you knew, need prayer or something, I'll be seated down here in the front. I'd love for you to come speak with me. But let's respond to the reality, to the firm ground of the gospel with feet of action. Let's walk. You come when you're ready. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.